I sat out last night in preparation of today's class and I asked myself a question that I ask myself every Sunday night when I'm sitting down to prepare. And that is, why are we learning Tanya? And what are we looking to achieve in these classes? Somehow, every week, I've got to re-ask myself the same question. And I remind myself that the Tanya gives us direction, it gives us guidance, it tells us what we can achieve, what we should achieve in life, and uh, not just in life, but in the, at large, but in the days to come. And I questioned myself, I thought, don't we all have our work cut out for us? Don't we kind of all know what we need to achieve? Everybody has their areas that they excel in. Everybody has the mitzvahs that they do. So uh, let everybody just do what they need to do and, and play their role and, and, uh, and succeed at that. Then I thought, not necessarily. Firstly, we don't necessarily always know what we need to do and what the next step is. And while we all have different acts of kindness that we are involved in and we have the positive difference that we make, sometimes we uh, need added inspiration and encouragement to do that mitzvah. So just because we all know what we're good at and, and the positive role that we could play, but it doesn't mean that we actually do it. So uh, perhaps a big part of the Tanya is that we sit down at the beginning of the week on a Monday morning and we do talk about what we're looking to achieve and, and how we can achieve it. We perhaps get the motivation and direction to actually go ahead and to, and to play the unique role that we could play. So while we all do so much good and we should certainly recognize each other's good, it doesn't mean that there isn't room for us to uh, be able to achieve a lot more. But I wasn't content. Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. <laughs> the last few chapters speak about who are we? Or the different types of people. We spoke at length from chapters 2 to... Eight, about the godly soul and the animal soul and these two personalities, these two worlds that exist within us. Chapter 9, we spoke about the battle of the souls, how after all, each of the two souls wants to be the driving force behind every moment of our life. And then here in chapters 10, 11 and 12, we speak about in chapter 10, the tzaddik, in chapter 11, the rasha, and in chapter 12, the benedi. And so I asked myself, does it really matter who is who or what I am or how I define myself? Does it really make, make a difference if I am the Tzaddik or the Rasha or the Benedi? Hasidus puts a big emphasis on not getting caught up in yourself and going out and making a difference. So it's very nice that we are on this journey to have a thorough and meaningful um, perspective of who we are and the drives within us and, and, and the different types of people, but are we not wasting time? On Shabbos morning we were learning a uh, Hasidic insight which described how logically a person can ask themselves if they've got a few minutes and they can either allocate those few minutes towards doing something themselves, doing a bit of themselves, or to help somebody else do a mitzvah. 
So if I were to use the time to get myself to do a mitzvah, so then I'm on board because I know that's what I've decided I'm going to do, so I'll do it. If I'm going to get somebody else to do a mitzvah, then, I mean, get somebody. If I'm going to help somebody else do a mitzvah, then they'll be interested or they won't be interested. So uh, it would be a better investment of my time to take care of myself. And the particular um, insight that we were learning in Shabbos morning said, no, Hasidus teaches that rather even give up on a certain success of oneself in order to be able to help somebody else. This all was a platform of my question. Why are we spending so much time trying to understand the drives within us and who we are? There's so much to actually go out and do. Let's go out and achieve and do and succeed. Isn't that what it's all about? Good morning. So meaningful, yes. Inspirational, yes. But is this what it's really all about? These terms of Atzantik and Rasha and Bainini are not to be used on other people. We should look at every other person as a tzaddik. We're not here to start assessing other people's inner beings and, 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 and what their real drives are. When it comes to somebody else, our job is to just reveal the neshama, to reveal the good that's within them. Nothing more. So what role does this play? I called a friend of mine in Chicago. Just because of time zones, so I, moved to, uh, the, I moved to the Northern Hemisphere, where, or I should say to the West when I'm preparing my shir because we're not going to call other people locally. So it's late. We had a quick conversation. And as we chatted, the answer became very clear. Yes, the focus is on doing and helping another person. But we've got to be healthy. If we're going to be going out there and, I don't know, if the doctor decides that they're doing, uh, um, uh, there's a doctor that decides that he or she is doing 22-hour shifts at the hospital and it's because just go get to another patient and save another life, that's, is it commendable? Maybe it's not because she needs to get her own sleep or he needs to get his own sleep but he needs to be healthy so that he can actually... Uh, be able to achieve a lot more. So firstly, we need to be physically and spiritually healthy. So yes, we need to go out there and do another mitzvah and help somebody else, but it's important that we're strong, that we look after our spiritual well-being. And more than that, it's not so black and white. We're not machines. This is just what I was thinking. Just go do another mitzvah, you know, like as if it's a machine that just needs to produce another product. We do spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves. I mean, just, just thinking last night at, at the wedding how so many people in a room, each in their own world, and it could actually be emotionally exhausting interacting. Excuse me. No problem. Interacting with so many p different people in so many different spaces, and uh, 
everybody, you have your different experiences with each person and you could kind of in two minutes just move across different worlds of experiences, which is what happens when you're in a big space. And then you could ask yourself, you know, you're thinking about them and how are they thinking about you? Just normal things that we do as human beings. So we're not machines and we do spend a lot of our time thinking about who am I? Am I a good person? Or what am I made of? So it's very nice to say, why waste your time with this um, uh, inspirational, uh, personal encouragement when you could just go ahead and do a mitzvah? But we are sophisticated. We have depth. And while there's uh, infinite value in the mitzvah that we do, we're human beings and we need to be physically and spiritually healthy, spiritually healthy and we need to develop both what we do and uh, sorry. Anyhow, I'm just giving a little bit of ramblings because if I'm asking myself what am I looking to achieve in the Tanya and I open up to what I'm about to teach and then it's fair for me to ask myself that is this maybe just a waste of time sounds a strong term because it's Torah after all, but maybe it's misappropriated time. Maybe we should rather be learning just um, the laws of how to make a Pesach Seder. That's very important just to deal with this inspirational inner journeys. I wasn't sure if there's space for that. And, and as I spoke with a friend and I thought about it, I, I reminded myself that it's crucial. It's very important that we look after who we are and not just what we do. It's a big part of us. And that could give us the strength to be able to actually achieve a lot more, to go out and do many more mitzvahs. So on that note, let's take a look at chapter 11 of the Tanya. We learned about the Russia. Last week we learned about the Tzaddik. We described that the Tzaddik has reached a point that even the animal within him, meaning even those just instinctive, um, selfish drives within him are also all directed towards God. What do we mean directed towards God? We don't mean uh, not directed towards people, on the contrary. It means it's that every fiber of his being is directed towards bringing out the true life force and good of this world. We discussed a couple of weeks ago how from one perspective, from a scientific perspective, a person could say that the physical is real. I can touch it, smell it, feel it. But God's, go prove it. But the Tanya comes the other way down. The Tanya comes with a perspective that this world is about a fleeting moment. It's finite. It's here today. It's not here the next moment. God is real. He's here to stay. He is the true life force and existence of everything. And when we're able to plug into a godly reality, we're able to bring out the godliness and the positivity within everything. We're able to allow each thing to play the positive role that it needs to play. And yes, sometimes in dealing with negativity, it gives us the strength to do away with it if that's what its role is or to turn it into something positive as we spoke about in chapter 7 and 8. The tzaddik is somebody who we, look, we learned last week has achieved um, within himself that even the selfish drives within him are all just towards good. 
And we learned that very few people are tzaddikim. For somebody to be on a level where not only do they do the right thing, but they only desire the right thing, that's the very few such people in the world. That was last week. That was the tzaddik. This week we come to the Russia. When we spoke about the tzaddik, we actually spoke about two types of tzaddikim. We spoke about a tzaddik who is absolutely righteous. And we spoke about the tzaddik that still has some subtle negativity in their lives. But that tzaddik has managed to overwhelm that negativity with positivity. This week we say, the Tanya in chapter 11 begins that, with the famous words of King Solomon, that Hashem created the world, everything is a reflection. You have the two sides. So whatever we just described about the tzaddik, we have the same thing by the Russia as well. And the Tanya describes three different or two general types of Rishayim. Many levels of tzaddikim, there are many levels of Rishayim. But the Tanya describes two general types. There is the Russia that still has good. However, the good is overwhelmed by the bad. And then we have the Russia that is completely bad. But here we make a distinction. We say even the Russia that's completely bad also has good. But it's not inside of him. It's not inside of his consciousness. It's, be, it's hovering over him kind of from the outside. We'll speak more about it in a few moments. Chapter 11 speaks very much to me and you as we are before we try to be better, before we strive to be a Benini or we strive to be a Tzaddik. The Tanya certainly has raised the bar. While conventionally, the Benini is somebody that does some good and some bad, and the Tzaddik does, only good, uh, does more good than bad, and the Russia does more bad than good, the Tanya has taught us already in chapter 1, we mentioned briefly, that um, the moments we allow the animal within us to uh, dictate the way we act, at that moment we're a Russia. It could be in the smallest area, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Which means, you could have a person that, if you were to take a vote, everybody would say he's a complete tzaddik. But the moment that he allows the animal within him to cause him to sin, even a small sin, even violating a a rabbinic decree, which is one of the 613 commandments of the Torah, is to listen to what the sages say. We're not talking about what uh, every guy that thinks he has something to have to say. Not everything is always true. We're talking about the sages from back in the day, the, the, like Hanukkah, Purim, what the sages instituted. A person even violates a minor sin. At that moment, he, he's a Russia. Why? The godly soul recognizes that our life comes from Hashem. And at the moment of sin, we separate ourselves from Hashem. Which means we separate ourselves from life. The godly soul realizes that a moment of sin, however minute it may be, is a death-like moment. It's a moment that's void of godliness, of our source of life. 
And so the godly soul would fight to the bitter end like a person would fight, fight against death using every possible resource it has to ensure that even the smallest of sin doesn't come into, uh, isn't executed. That's if we only had a godly soul. We don't only have a godly soul. We have a godly soul and an animal soul. The animal soul is in a very different space. The animal soul says, enjoy it, have a good time. It's, you know, you're not at Sadiq anyhow, you, 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 you're not on that level. And it's, uh, the, the, his, he is a master at his work. Our animal within us, or the evil inclination, it's not always the same, but often it is, is an expert at uh, uh, ex explaining to us and, and uh, persuading us to engage in that moment of disconnection from Hashem. And it's important to remind ourselves of the distinction between the Bainani, which we'll learn about next week, and the Russia. If a person desires to do something wrong, that does not make him a Russia. A person could have the worst of desires. Talk about between uh, man and man. A person could desire to do something that is morally absolutely un uh, unethical and corrupt. But they're not a Russia if they don't execute it. The fact that they desire that, it's not really necessarily their fault. This is something that's put before them. It's a desire. It's not a choice that they made. We don't choose our feelings. We choose how to respond to our feelings. The Russia is somebody who allowed that desire to actually bring the person to sin, to separate himself from God. That moment of sin, the moment the person separates himself from Hashem, that's when he's disconnected. We always on a deeper level remain connected, but he's, he's allowed that which hides Hashem to control his life instead of being connected. So I asked the question, why do we say that the moment a person sins in even the smallest of ways, he's already considered a Russia? And I'm making the distinction. A person can desire the worst of sin and is not a Russia. Because he realizes that while he can't change how he feels, he can decide at every point, we'll learn more about this in chapter 13, at every point a person has the ability to take control. And so he may have the worst of desires, but he has... As long as he's not, God forbid, sick in whatever way. But he has the ability to control what he feels. And so he could have terrible desires, but he's not a Russia. Conversely, you could have a person that looks like he's a tzaddik. And he uh, wouldn't want to hurt a fly. But if he allows his animal to bring him, to separate himself from God in even the smallest of ways at that moment... It means that the animal is now in control. The person that desires evil, his animal is there, it's very present. He has an animal soul, but the animal is not in control. The person that does evil, even the smallest of evils, even in the smallest way, unfortunately has allowed the animal to actually take the driver's seat and to make that decision to bring him to do, to do the wrong thing. What about talking about evil and good? That in itself is a subject, because each one of us can have a different definition of what's evil and what's, and what's good. So that's a, it's a very uh, significant question. It comes up 
continuously when we learn Tanya. I think it needs to be addressed more thoroughly. But the, the quick answer I like to give is that there are black, and there's, there are black areas and there are white areas and there are grey areas. Certain things, the Torah says, are not allowed. It's black and white. It's not allowed. There's no, there's no two ways about it. You can rationalize from today till tomorrow. It's not allowed. There are certain gray areas. And when it's gray, then uh, one really does need uh, assistance from Hashem to be able to decipher uh, right from wrong. So let's talk now about what is black and white. And let's remind ourselves to not mix up black and white for gray. Sometimes we take areas that are black and white and we try to say that it's gray. And really it is black and white. There are some gray areas, and sometimes we make misjudgments, we make mistakes, we're human, and that's fine. But for the purpose of this discussion, there are, we all do have those areas where we know clearly what's right and what's wrong, and we know it's the wrong thing. And we challenge ourselves to not fail. And sometimes we do fail, and when we do fail, it's called a Russia, because a Russia is a person that has allowed the, 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 the evil soul, oh, so not the evil soul, the evil inclination or the animal soul within him to actually take the driver's seat and bring him to do something that is wrong. Natanya describes, in, in general, two types of Rishon. There's the Russia that feels bad, and the Russia that doesn't feel bad. So we'll talk a little bit about Jewish guilt. <laughs> Our sages tell us that the wicked are full of regret. Which reminds me of, I don't know if it's a joke or it's not so funny, of the guy that quit smoking seven times. So the simple understanding that the wicked are full of regret might be that um, uh, they need to keep regretting because they keep lapsing, they keep doing it again and again, so they're full of regret. I had a teacher in yeshiva, and he once said, don't be sorry, just be right. And I was a little bit horrified, like, what do you mean, like, sorry, like, what do you mean, just be right? And he told me something, you know, sometimes we're so quick to be sorry, but stop being sorry and just change it, you know, and if you don't care to change it, then don't be sorry, but, but, but to do the wrong thing and plan on being sorry or be sorry and continue doing the wrong thing, that doesn't help anything, you just change it. And that brings the argument against Jewish guilt. I've heard it being said, there's no mitzvah in the Torah to feel guilty. There's many mitzvahs of what we should do and what we shouldn't do, but to feel guilty? There's no mitzvah to feel guilty, but we do. Why? Because we have a neshama. And that neshama is real. It's a part of who we are. And it, it tries to make its voice heard. And so even if we decide to do the wrong thing, it's not God forbid like now we've just thrown out the godly soul and now we're just going with the animal soul. The godly soul is with us wherever we go. There was a particular chassid to whom the Rebbe said, it was a larger story, I don't remember it. Just remember that wherever you go, you take me with you. Chassid represents his Rebbe. Obviously, that made him think twice about where he goes and what he does. 
every Jew, wherever we go, we take our godly soul with us. So that's what it means that the wicked are full of regret. It's not like just baloney, you know, just stop trying to quit smoking, just quit it. Or, you know, just stop feeling bad, just do the right thing. Sometimes we do the wrong thing. And the fact that we feel bad is... Our neshama that's saying that I'm not comfortable with this. This is this is this doesn't sit with me. It's it, it, it's not who I am. <coughs> Freud believed that even when we feel like we're so holy. Whatever we do boils down to our animalistic drives. <coughs> Freud believed that we have an animal soul and he was right. But Hasidus teaches that deeper than the id of Freud is the yid, is the neshama. Deeper than a desire to, of self-preservation and, and, and just what's in it for me, which is so deeply embedded in our consciousness because we are animalistic and that is a big part of us and we do have an animal soul but deeper than that is the shaman that continuously wants to be connected to Hashem and to bring Hashem into this world and to bring out the godliness within every person around us and so while Freud said that maybe look a little deeper and you'll see that you've got a selfish drive Hasidah said look deeper than that and see that in every circumstance that you find yourself there's that shaman that's continuously yearning and calling and saying that I want to be connected. So is Jewish guilt a bad thing? I think it's a very good thing. It's a good thing. It's, 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 it's the, the Jewish conscious. The Jewish consciousness that, that I'll never be complacent. I'm never going to be comfortable with the fact that I'm doing the wrong thing because, because at the core of my being is my neshama that continuously wants nothing less than to be connected with Hashem. Maybe I'll first finish up and then we'll go back to questions if you can hold on to it. That's the one type of Russia which I certainly identify with. Then there's another type of Russia. There's a type of Russia that unfortunately has given his animal soul so much control that he has silenced the voice of his godly soul. That he doesn't feel any regret. He's comfortable. There is no voice inside of him saying that I want to be connected. Or there's no voice that's being heard because he silenced that voice. This is what's called a Russia Varalai, a Russia that has bad. There's the Russia Vatoibloi, just like earlier when we spoke about the Tzaddik, we said there's a Tzaddik that still has bad, but the bad is. Uh, controlled by the good, and then you have a tzaddik that's complete good. So so to by Russia, you have a Russia that still has good, meaning there still is that godly voice inside of him. However, the godly voice is still being controlled by the bad, meaning that it's not actually um, um, gaining enough strength to prevent him from sin. And so he sins, and therefore he's called the Russia, but he still has good. And then there's the Rosh Hashanah, the Rosh that's completely bad, which means that he doesn't have that conscious, he doesn't have that feeling, at least in his conscious self, of how I shouldn't be doing this because I really want to be connected to Hashem. Yet, chapter 11 concludes 
with a beautiful line. And it says, wherever ten Jews congregate, I call to Sharia. Wherever ten Jews congregate, like over here right now in this room, Hashem is there. Where there, are, where there are ten Jews present, God is present. God is everywhere. But we need a greater Godly presence. What is that greater Godly presence? It's the presence of the Neshama. And the point that the Tanya is making is even the person that feels or thinks or we view him as a complete Russia, meaning that we don't see any godly voice, any neshama voice um, uh, being heard from him, he too has the neshama. It's just that the neshama is right now, the analogy is given that it's hovering over him. It says a million of people has, has godly presence hovering over them, but not necessarily in them. It's not in his consciousness, but it's still there. When we say on the outside, we don't mean that it's not a part of him. We mean it's outside of his consciousness. It's, 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 he's not aware that it's there. It's, it's outside of his current program. But it's still actually the core of who he is. So he's able to take the core of who he is, this Jew, which is his neshama. It's not so easy to do it. But unfortunately it can happen that, that he's reached a point that the core of who he is is actually now outside of his consciousness. And therefore it's hovering above. It's still there. But it's waiting for a window to be able to shout, Hello! Can you hear me? And it happens. The, the Tanya does say that every Jew at a certain moment will actually hear that voice. But the complete Rosh is the person that is not hearing the voice at all. He's not hearing the voice of his Neshama. But he too, it will definitely surface. And that's how the Tanya concludes. We always end on a positive note, but not, not just for the purpose of ending, ending on a positive, positive note, but because Hasidus does teach us that no matter what a person does, which is something that we've been repeating throughout all the many chapters that we've learned, they still have that neshama. And even if they feel like they don't, and they renounce themselves or convert to another religion or take whatever measures they take to be anti-Jewish or Israel or religious or whatever it may be, the neshama is still there, but it's not in their consciousness, but it is at the core of who they are. On that note, I'd like to share uh, two stories and then we'll open up the floor for questions. There was a particular chassid. His name was Reb Ichit Abbasmid. He could have been a Rebbe. Very, very uh, refined individual. Lived about maybe 80, 60 years ago, 50 years ago. He once came to a place that he needed to, where he was staying, and they offered him... Uh, dinner. And he said, I'm exhausted. I'm just going to go straight to sleep. Huh? I'm too tired to eat. And he, a few hours later, the host came around. He saw that he's still, uh, he's still up. He's praying. He said that. The host said to this Ravishu the Vaspid, he said that you were exhausted. What happened? Can I serve you dinner? He said, I am exhausted. I can't, I don't know. I'm not going to sit down and eat now. But how can I go to sleep without thinking about Davening to Hashem and speaking about Hashem. Like, that I can't do, you know. Obviously, me and you, so it's the exact reverse sometimes, you know. I can't go to sleep hungry. I'll have to grab another snack. But uh, to be able to say this bedtime, smile, I'm too tired. This Rav he was in a very different space. Now that I've given you a little bit of a perspective of who this Rav Itcher Rasmid was, I'll share a beautiful anecdote. It's beautiful on two accounts, and I'll explain afterwards why. And he was teaching this chapter of Tanya, chapter 11 of Tanya, which described the complete Russia that 
doesn't regret. He doesn't regret his wrongdoings. He burst in emotions and he said, I'm worse than him. Why am I worse than him? Because I also don't regret. I continue to do the same thing every day and I don't make changes to my life. I don't feel bad. I, I, don't, I don't regret not raising the bar. I, I just do the same thing. I mean, we know what kind of individual he was. Many hours learning, very few hours eating, very spiritual person. He says, I'm worse than the worst Russia. Somebody asked him, okay, I hear your reasoning, but even according to your reasoning, you're not worse than the, the, the worst Russia. You're just the same as the worst Russia. You both don't regret. You don't feel bad. You don't look to change. He said, no, the complete Russia has never learned Hasidus. So what do you expect? I'm learning Hasidus every day and I still don't have any regrets. The previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, heard the story and he said, there's too much, he's too downspirited, too much Marish Chayla. And that's why I love the story. It brings out two fundamental Hasidic perspectives. The first perspective is, you could learn about this Russia. I remember once somebody saying, like, that person is a Russia Marusha, is a completely evil person. I was horrified. I never heard such thing in my lexicon growing up. It just didn't exist. So you could think after learning chapter 11 that there's a Russia Marala. Okay, thank God, at least we're not him. Comes this Chassid that you may have thought can easily put himself on a pedestal, that he has made it, he's really reached spiritual awareness. He's, if only we were able to be on a fraction of his level. And he learns chapter 11 of the Tanya. And what does he say? I'm worse than the worst Russia. What's the positive element of this anecdote? That, he's very learned. Pardon? He's very learned. Despite him being very learned, He's able to look at the lowest and he says, I'm worse than him. Like, that's incredible. That level of true humility, not just faint humility, that you would think, you know, people often wonder, I'm going to come to Shul, right? You all made it to the Shul. There are thousands of Jews in the neighborhood that would never come here. Why? Because I'll be judged. Like they think that we're going to end up walking and we'll think that they're, that they're not good enough and they're sinning and like, you know, look after all and they'll say, they say to themselves, I sin and it's a fact and this guy, you know, the rabbi is going to see that I sin and, and, and uh, I don't want to be looked down upon. So I'd rather be in environments that don't focus on, that don't notice my, my wrongdoings. It's a very logical argument. But Chassidus teaches us in such a deep and real way that you're doing better than me. Every one of you in this room and all of those that didn't even come to and all of those Jews that I just described that are too intimidated, they'll feel judged. They're doing a better job than me. It's an amazing perspective that we, we learn about the highest of highest of Sadiqim last week and the lowest of lowest of Rishayim this week. And here of Ichid of Asmid is able to come and say that I'm worse than the lowest Russia. What's the beautiful part of the story? The beautiful part of the story is that he... He, he humbled himself even before what would be the lowest of Russia. And he says that that Russia is doing better than me. Because I learned Chassidus and I haven't changed. And he hasn't learned Chassidus, of course he hasn't changed. On the other hand, the story says, we shouldn't look at, our, look at ourselves as a Russia. Friedrich Kermit said, no, this is, 
too critical. He was being too critical. You shouldn't be so critical of yourself. Don't look at yourself as worse than the worst Russia. In chapter 30, we'll learn about how to judge every person favorably and how even the biggest sinner, we could see how they're doing better than us. We'll get there in chapter 30. We've got a bit of time. But that was one story. The second story is uh, the author of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, Rav Shneo Zaman of Liyadi. So the, he had chassidim in different towns. There was a particular town. And all the chassidim used to give what was called maimon, a monetary contribution. And that helped towards the, the, the financial uh, stability of, of, of the Rebbe and his home. And it wasn't just a financial setup. It wasn't just like membership. It was more than that. It was also a way that they felt that they could all contributes in a very tangible way. And there was one chassid whose job it was to go from town to town and collect maimut. And he would take every person's name and he would bring all the people's names to the river and he would bring to the river. It wasn't, it's not that he was bringing the names of those people that gave tzedakah. Everybody did it and he brought everybody's names. Until there was a particular chassid that dropped, he fell off the rails and the other chassidim didn't want him around. Maybe they thought he's a negative influence. And they distanced him from the community. Came along the Gabbai Tzedakah. And he, comes, he starts doing his rounds. And this guy's not around. So his name doesn't appear on the list. He comes back to the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe looks at the list. And he sees that this particular chassid is not named. He's not, he's not present. So he asks the Gabbai, what about this particular chassid? He said, no, like. He's, he's gone off the tracks. The Altarever got very upset. He said that they should never have distanced him. And it was out of line. And he said like this, you have no idea how much pleasure a million of Jews gives to Hashem. And you have no idea how much pleasure Hashem has when one Jew stops from doing one small sin. This is the Tanya's perspective. That, that yes, he may have gone off the track, even if he was a complete Russian, that he no longer has godliness in his consciousness at all, but he's precious. In fact, the, the Talmud says that any minion that does not have the sinners of Israel is considered incomplete. So yes, they can reach a person that is in that state where, it's very hard, by the way, to reach that. Most people we know do have Jewish guilt, so they do hear the neshama. But even if somebody is in a state of being where they don't feel it at all, they have a neshama. One final quick anecdote, and I actually wasn't going to share this because I thought it could be dangerous, but I just changed my mind. There was a particular chassid, I've forgotten his name, and he, he was once in a Fabregan, and, and he said, I love taking a bus in Tel Aviv, through the streets of Tel Aviv, and watching all the Jews there. Chassidim turned around, what are you talking about? Like, Tel Aviv, it's not necessarily everything so appropriate. You know, you go to Kfar Chabad and you have a Hasidic lifestyle. You're going to take a bus down the streets. And we know what goes on over there. You know, how can you say that? I, I love, it's so delightful to watch these Jews. We know what happens over there. How could this be a delight? He said, coming out of communist Russia, I was never able to see Jews congregate. I love it. I, I don't care what they're doing. They have a shop, man. It brings me such joy. I'll share it. I was scared to share it because we do need to be careful, you know. If, if, if somebody is doing... Now, Tel Aviv is a wonderful place. Nothing against Tel Aviv. I'm just sharing the story. But, uh, but it doesn't mean that now we can go ahead and celebrate every, every uh, person that does everything wrong. But it does mean that despite whatever wrong a person may do, 
we can celebrate and have excitement in being able to engage with them and being able to engage with the good that exists within them. By the way, if I may, yes. your grandmother, my mother, 